I want you to know that I'm happy for you. I wish nothing but the best for you both. The perfect version of me is he perverted like me when he go down on you in a theater. So he speaks eloquently, and you can have his baby. I'm sure you'd make a really excellent mother. 'Cause the love that you gave that we made wasn't able to make it enough for you to be open wide. Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, January nineteenth, two thousand and twenty. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of arts and culture journalism program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. She sits on the executive board of the Outer Critics Circle. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. And we're going to talk about the Outer Critics Circle soon. Good. So. Uh-huh. All right. So, uh, Peter, why don't you give an answer to last week's trivia? Okay. Uh, The question was, in the 80s, when the book writer, composer, and lyricist, each of whom had already won two Tonys, originally worked on this show, it had a song with this lyric. The wait for critics is a bitch, but here's a very lucky switch. We win approval from Frank Rich, even though it isn't song time. By the time the show opened, the song was dropped, and for good reason. So what's the musical, the names of the three writers, and the reason the song was dropped? Well, the show is Curtains. When Tony winners, two-time Tony winners, Peter Stone, John Kander, and Fred Ebb started the show in the 80s, it was to be set in the 80s. In fact, if you know the song, It's a Business, the lyric that you know, I do the Kama Sutra with a Richard Rogers score, was originally I do the Kama Sutra with a Jerry Herman score. If you know the song, Show People, the lyric, they fancy this life, they jeer Sherlock Holmes and cheer Mac the Knife. The original lyric was, and honest to God, they jeer Sherlock Holmes and cheer Sweeney Todd. But after Peter Stone died, Rupert Holmes came in and said, oh, let's set it in 1959, which was the time before Jerry Herman, the Sweeney Todd musical, Frank Rich, and almost before Sondheim. By the way, the song from which the uh, lyric came was called Collaboration, and it's a terrific song. Anyway, Joe Cross was the first to get it, followed by Joanna Abizi, who even knew the name of the song. Cassie Bennett, Ingrid Gammerman, Brigadude, Mike Meany, and Jack Leshner, who pointed out that Bernie Nee, the band singer in Ballroom, part of last week's trivia answer, 
sang the Backrack David classic song, The Blob, from the esteemed motion picture of that name. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. What, what, what about Tony Janicki? Oh, Tony made mistake after mistake after mistake on this question. He needed no fewer than three hints before he finally got even close. But if you follow baseball, you may have heard of Brooks Robinson, a third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles, who for 16 straight seasons won the Gold Glove Award, meaning he was the best to play that position. In 2007, the 50th anniversary of the awards, he was voted the best ever, ever at that position in the whole history of Major League Baseball. In between, he was named the MVP of a World Series. And why do I bring this up? Because on July 29, 1971, Brooks Robinson made three errors in one inning. So even the greats are entitled to a few <laughs> errors. And with this failure on curtains, Tony Janicki still makes our Broadway Radio Hall of Fame, the Brooks Robinson of Broadway Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Two quick things. So, uh, Joanna, is it Ebizy? E-B-Z? E-B-Z? I'm going to have to get it. No, we have to get her on the phone, ask her the <laughs> correct pronunciation of her, thing, of her name. I think it's EBZ. Um, but I'm glad you brought up baseball because as somebody who has written uh, baseball books. And, well, one. one. <laughs> well, you know. All right. Anyway, go printed on. more than one book. So. <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell that from oh. my royalty statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's never that way. It's, you know, um, what do we think about this uh, whole uh, baseball scandal with uh, cheating in the Astros? You know what I thought you were going to ask about? I thought you were going to ask about um, the first female coach. Have you heard about that yeah. for the San Francisco mm -hmm. Giants? Yeah. Uh, because, of course, we're going to be talking about a lot of women today. But um, um, Jacob Rupert, who used to own the Yankees way back when, said, uh, I am old enough to be surprised by absolutely nothing. Um, and um, the famous expression, I believe everything and I believe nothing, uh, which most people attribute to Oscar Wilde, which was actually said by Inspector Clouseau, um, <laughs> is the way I live my life. So I'm not the least bit surprised to hear about this. And everybody's innocent until proved guilty. But um, nevertheless, it doesn't look good, does it? But I'm thinking the uh, the transformation of this story into a musical, the, the banging of the uh, trash cans in center field might make for some interesting choreography and, and a musical number. It sort of sounds like it came out of the stomp. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So let's move forward into uh, our review section. Peter and Jan both got a chance to see My Name is Lucy Barton at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater, Manhattan uh, Theater Company. Uh, so, Jan, why don't you start us off with uh, Lucy Barton? Okay. Uh, this is a one-woman show uh, based on the best-selling uh, novel from 2016 by uh, Elizabeth uh, Strout, who people may uh, remember as the author of uh, Olive Kittredge, uh, uh award-winning novel that was turned into a mini-series starring uh, Francis McDormand. And this, uh, My Name is Lucy Barton, centers on the title character who we meet in a hospital room. And it's, uh, she's, she's narrating what happened when she was in that hospital room and before. She 
is a, a young mother of two small children. She goes into the hospital for an appendectomy and complications uh, uh, arise and she, she ends up staying in the hospital for over two months. And during that time, her mother is summoned by her husband and she has been estranged from her mother. They've not spoken in many years. They were even estranged when they were living together and she was a child. And the play supposedly centers around this visit with her mother, which, as you can imagine, is an awkward uh, visit. I read uh, the book when it came out, the novel when it came out. It's a very difficult novel because it's very interior. It's uh, You can sort of understand in a way why producers thought it might work as a, a one-woman show because Lucy Barton is narrating uh, first person, the novel. And so you have an actor narrating first person uh, on stage. And the actor they've chosen is the great Laura Linney. And so this, uh, it, she, the show is directed, I believe, by Richard Iyer, who um, is obviously a great director. So all of the ingredients sound really wonderful. But for me, they ended up like a fallen souffle. Um, this, it's very difficult to incorporate this sort of stream of consciousness that she has where she's reflecting on her childhood, which was a very unhappy uh, childhood uh, filled with emotional abuse, poverty, perhaps physical abuse. Uh, she talks uh, somewhat uh, in the book, a great deal in the play, somewhat uh, about this. Uh, she. It's also the dynamic between her and her mother, who's a very withdrawn person. And it's finally also about the making of an artist because we learn that Lucy becomes a writer and is in essence telling us the story of how she wrote the story that we're seeing. But large parts of it, she alternates between her own voice and her mother's voice. Uh, the audience came more alive, um, and I too sat up in my chair when she used the mother's voice, which is somewhat caricatured, uh, but livelier, just livelier. There's not very much on the stage except the bed and a chair where the, the mother can sit. Some members of the audience are actually on stage sitting on either side, I see no reason for that, except that Manhattan Theater Club wanted to get more people uh, in there, more butts and seats, so they created more seats. But ultimately, it just is not engaging enough. On the page, when you can reflect on what she's saying and, and Strout and the woman who uh, adapted of uh, the play, a woman named Rona Monroe, who is also a playwright, but she adapted the novel for the stage. They're very literary writers, and it's difficult to 
sometimes take in those sentences, those allusions when you're, when you're, you're hearing them and there's not very much action going on stage. It's just two people sitting, maybe standing up, not two people, one person standing up, sitting down. Um, it just didn't work for me. But but I am I'm I'm really curious to hear what Peter thought. <laughs> so Peter, what do you think? Uh, I agree with a lot of that, but um, you know that famous expression uh, that is given so many times about a performer. I could watch him or her read the phone book. Uh, well, you know, today of course we don't have phone books anymore, but I could watch Laura Linney <laughs> uh, read a financial report from the Pfizer Corporation and have a wonderful time. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Because she is one of our finest actresses by far. Um, she's so wonderful to look at. She's uh, in every way. And that was the, f- um, <clears throat> the uh, power of the production for me. I cannot disagree with um, anything about the play itself. And I wish that it had been a two-character play. Now, it's in a way, I don't. Because Laura Linney is so good when she plays both mother and daughter and in the mother this wonderful moment where she sees something in a magazine and she doesn't like it and um she holds the magazine out uh, ostensibly showing it to her daughter and the way she hits the magazine with such contempt you know about the junk that's in it also there's a moment where laura linney has to play her mother sitting down and boy the way she eases herself into that chair very carefully you can tell that this is an older woman who's had a tough time of it um so those little details meant so much to me. And that's one of the reasons why um, I certainly found Lucy Barton a terrific experience. Now, I have seen a lot of shows where the audience is, some of the audience is on stage. And um, whenever that happens, I always pay attention, is indeed the performer, performers going to give those people their due? You know, this is a very difficult thing. We're talking about um, people flanked on each side of the stage, okay? And so I was really watching to see if Laura Linney was going to pay attention to them or act as if they're not there. So many times I've seen performers do that. They just don't care. that They just want to play out front. But Laura Linney certainly gave the people on stage their money's worth. I don't know how much they pay for those. I hope in a way it's not as much because they're not real theater seats. I think they're just chairs, but I don't mean folding chairs or anything like that. But um, but uh, anyway, um, it, it was very nice to see her make a, an ostensible effort to include them in the action because um, that doesn't always happen. So um, it was great to see her back on the stage where she was in Little Foxes and so wonderful there uh, in both roles for that matter. And uh, uh, Regina and Bertie. But all things considered, um, if this were a two-character play, boy, the fur would fly, and uh, that's what has to happen. Because really, when a mother shows up after a long time of being estranged from a kid, I mean, that's drama. Um, you, 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 at one point, you have to say, where have you been? Um, on the other hand, you have to say, I appreciate your coming. Um, <clears throat> you made this trip. You may say, get out. There, there were so many possibilities for what could happen when estranged um, parent and child meet again, especially after such a long time apart, and especially when they realized a long time ago when, when um, 
Lucy Barton was a child, that they didn't have anything in common mm-hmm. and they had very different goals and ideas. You know, boy, you know, let's see that. Um, you know, if, if you're going to make a little bit of money from people on stage uh, in the audience, spend the money on an actress and let's make it happen. <laughs> I'm sure that um, the playwright um, didn't know this was going to happen, um, Rona Monroe, but still, um, I'm very sorry it's not a two-character play. And really, another salary? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's an actress out there who would work for equity minimum just to be on the stage with Laura Linney. So um, so that's a, a lost opportunity. But if you like Laura Linney, if you love Laura Linney, yes, I do think it's worth the trip. Or you can get the uh, audio book because they're recording this production. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And so um, that's right. I don't, I, I don't know when it's going to come out, but that might be a more cost-effective way to do yes. it. Yes, yes, I'm sure it will be. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. So uh, this is a right now. It is a limited run through February 29th over at the Friedman. Um, I. They, they keep on talking about how the the end date is February 29th, so I'm not sure it's going to extend. But uh, I, I wonder uh, if this is the last we're seeing of this. this well, year. she's a busy actress. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but too busy to perhaps pick up a Tony Award? <laughs> yeah, you know, really, um, she is overdue. Um, but another thing I have to say, I, I hope I'm not getting too personal with this, and um, but I'll go out on a limb on this. Um, her father was Romulus Linney, and uh, he was a playwright. In fact, I'm pretty sure he had a play at that theater called The Love Suicide at Schofield Barracks, which I did not see on Broadway, but I later saw at BU, directed by Alan Schneider, uh, the acclaimed director who did um who's afraid of virginia wolf and it was phenomenal anyway so when i talked to her i said oh your father's play oh my god and she essentially said um i really didn't know my father for whatever reason so i have a feeling that may be a reason why she was attracted to the show because she can relate to having um a distance from a parent oh that's interesting yeah okay so uh Check it out. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and if you can get over to the theater and see it, uh, let us know on uh, Facebook or Twitter what you thought about it or just email us. Broadway Radio is being brought to you by listeners like you, patrons who support us at patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. When you support Broadway Radio, you will get the benefit of early access to our broadcast before anyone else. Financial support for Broadway Radio will help us continue to bring our broadcast to you through 2020 and beyond. Once again, that is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio to become a supporter. So uh, next up, Peter and Jan both got to see Miss America's Ugly Daughter. Um, so this time, why don't Peter, why don't you start us off with Miss America's Ugly Daughter? The subtitle is Bess Meyerson and Me. And um, if you're um, a younger person, you, the many, name Bess Meyerson may mean nothing to you. And if you're an older one, it means quite a bit to you. Um, she was the first Jewish Miss America and to this day, the only Jewish Miss America. But imagine what that was like in 1945. I mean, because really, uh, it's, it, in those days, um, such a thing almost seemed like an impossibility. 
So anyway, but she was quite an accomplished lady in so many, many ways. But um, it was a case of, oh, how the mighty have fallen as time goes on. Well, one of the problems was that she was very disappointed in her daughter, as your title will tell you, because here's this beautiful woman with a daughter she perceives as ugly. Whether or not the girl was ugly is another story. We don't see many pictures of her um, during the period of time that she's talking about. There are a lot of slides, a lot of slides. Um, There are baby pictures, but we don't see her during her, we all had it, some of us never grow out of it, awkward age. Um, And it just doesn't have the power it should have because we want to see what she's talking about. A picture is worth a thousand words, and there are plenty of thousands of words in this show um, as she talks about her mother and gets phone calls from her mother, which, by the way, I assumed were pre-recorded, but they're not. At the end of the show, the actress came out playing her mother because there are incessant phone calls. The mother thought nothing of calling at three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning um, because she was so needy and because so many of her friends had abandoned her because she really got into a few scandals here and there. Um, There's no question that uh, when Ed Koch uh, was running for mayor, she was a great help to him. And a lot of people feel that she's the one who really put him in Gracie Mansion. But after that, it was all downhill. And so even though she thought her daughter was ugly and drove her daughter crazy when she was a child, she hasn't stopped driving her um, daughter crazy now that she's an adult. So this is what goes on. We hear um, Barra Grant. That's her name. I'd like to know where the name Barra comes from, but we're not told that either. Uh, B-A-R-R-A. Um, and, um, she, um, tells us the story in between the phone calls. And I wish that I could be more enthusiastic about this, but I don't think that this, um, woman is a natural actress. Um, she has, (laughs) she doesn't walk around. Kind of you. (laughs) (laughs) She, um, just trouble walking around the stage even, uh, but, um, she has a voice that's, somewhere between Louise Lasser and Carol Channing. And um, so she's not pleasant to listen to either. And um, I hate to say that you you, you almost come out on Bess Meyerson's side, um, thinking that um, this is a person that um, does have a lot of problems. She does tell some very sad stories, and she did have some terrible things happen to her in her, in her life that had nothing to do with Bess Meyerson. But... Um, but nevertheless, um, it's it's the type of sob story that really doesn't put you on her side, um, basically because she simply doesn't seem to have the talent to relate this story terribly well. So I'm terribly sorry to say that um, that this show is uh, not something I can recommend. Nor can I. Um, uh, one of my uh, friends and a colleague at uh, the journalism school is doing uh, a book. She's written a book called Looking for Miss America, which is a social history of the whole Miss America pageant. And uh, I, uh, it's coming out in August, and I talked to her uh, about it. Her name is Margot Mifflin. And I called Margot, and I asked her how terrible a person was Bess Meyerson because this play doesn't just present her as a terrible mother. It presents her as just a terrible person who's totally self-involved. She's always, she's really cheap. She's uh, always taking things uh, from hotels and restaurants because she's too cheap to buy them herself. Uh, 
and 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 Margot said, well, she may not have been a great mother, but she was a a woman who really accomplished things, and that's totally missing in this this rendering of Bess Myers. And it's kind of a a mommy dearest approach. And I think the thing that uh, annoyed me the most is at the end, after about 85 minutes of just trashing her mother left and right, Barra Grant says, well, I've forgiven her. And I think, well, no, you haven't. <laughs> if this is the portrait you're presenting of your mother, some of the lines uh, that she's written, this is a show she's written as well as uh, uh, performing. Some of the lines are, are funny. And as Peter said, some of the experiences she recounts are touching, but I, I, I jumped in there. Um, and my apologies, Peter, when, uh, he was talking about her acting uh, because she's very awkward on stage and she had an acting career. It wasn't a great acting career, but she did lots of bit parts on television. And I don't know if these were because people were being kind to Bess Meyerson's daughter or if her acting ability has diminished over the years, she's now a woman in her 70s, but just moving, as Peter said, around the stage, she was so awkward. And for some reason, she has these little dance interludes she does. And I have never seen anyone so awkward at dancing. It's it, it just sort of like, I'm going to showcase one of my worst attributes. On the other hand, on the other hand, um, this is at um, this theater I'd never been to, the Marjorie Dean Little Theater in the West Side YMCA, the, the West Side Y, the Upper West Side Y. And at the uh, end of the play, she comes out into the lobby and women were surrounding her. And the woman who was seated next to me struck up a conversation before the show began. And she was saying that her mother had loved Bess Meyerson and her mother has, has, has died. And so she sort of came to see this as a tribute to her mother. So I thought at the end of this, she was going to be furious because Bess Meyerson was mm-hmm. so trashed. And she said, Oh, I loved it. Didn't you? And I said, I don't think I'm going to say. And we just sort of left it like that. This um, is uh, <laughs> for a show that's called Miss America's Ugly Daughter. I think this is a vanity production in, in just about every way. You know, I have to admit, um, as a child, my first three great crushes were on Annette Funicello, Debbie Reynolds, and Bess Meyerson. And um, she was um, on a show called The Big Payoff. And I remember when my parents and I came to New York uh, from Boston, uh, and they used to have TV shows here, and you used to go down to the hotel lobby, and they used to have tickets to the shows. Uh, we got tickets to The Big Payoff, and I was so, so mm-hmm. excited that I was going to see Bess Meyerson in person. And wouldn't you know she was on vacation that week? Oh. It, was one of the, it was one of the great profound disappointments of my childhood. Um, I'm, mm. I'm getting over it. I am. It won't be long <laughs> now, but, um, but nevertheless. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, 
I really was interested in this woman. I was looking forward to this to the point of which one of my drama desk nominator colleagues said, are you a publicist for this show? <laughs> so, so it really was a big disappointment. Um, my, one of my older brothers uh, was heavily involved in New York City politics, uh, and I got a chance to meet, meet Bess Myers ah. a oh. few times. Um, and uh, perfectly wonderful and gracious and very nice when I, when I met her. So I'm, I'm interested. I haven't seen the show, and now I feel as though I'm, I yeah. must go see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <So. laughs> All right. All right. All right. So uh, next up, Jan, get over to 5090's 59 to see How to Load a Musket. So Jan, tell us about this. This is an interesting uh, little show. It's in the smallest theater at 59 East 59. And it's uh, written by um, uh, an actress, uh, Talene Monahan, who spent five years interviewing people who are reenactors. You know, the people who uh, wear period costumes and reenact different eras from history. In this country, most of the reenactors tend to be either uh, American revolutionary figures or Civil War uh, figures. And she went around, interviewed these people, and has turned what they told her into a verbatim uh, play. And it starts off as kind of a comedy, uh, because um, not because she's making fun of them, but they're they're self aware uh, that people might think they're a little bit odd, and they're talking about why they they do this. And for some people, it's just their history buffs, and other people, it's a way to meet uh, people and 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 hang out. Uh, uh, and it's begins in that way and then because she did it over five years starting in 2014 ending in 2019 her interviews um the political environment changed and the way uh, the the environment in which these people were portraying history and the way we now look at history has changed and it becomes a really serious uh discussion meditation on how we view history the various interpretations you can bring to history uh among her uh the people that she interviewed, most of the people who do this are white, but she also interviewed people who were uh, uh, from a Latinx background, people who were black, who uh, were reenactors. But she also zeroes in on this guy. People may have read about him. He uh, is a performance artist and he has taken the name Dread. D-R-E-A-D, uh, Scott, wow. after Dred sure. Scott, the Dred Scott decision, decision. Um, that uh, really sort of reinforced um, uh, slavery, not sort of, that re- reinforced mm-hmm. uh, slavery. And Dred Scott came up with this idea of reenacting uh, uh early 19th century slave rebellion that took place outside of uh, New Orleans. And he did this last fall 
uh, over two days. People followed the exact path of the original um, uh, uprising uh, revolt of, of of the slaves, and reenactors, traditional reenactors, felt very uneasy with this. And she gets at that tension of how they looked at it. Uh, she doesn't stick the, the the landing on this. The end. Uh, sort of uh, falls apart, but she attracted a terrific cast. Um, it's only 85 minutes. It's done in this, as I say, small space. And leading the cast uh, are Adam Chandler, uh, Barat, uh, Richard Topol, uh, Lucy Taylor uh, is another name that, that and face people might recognize. There are uh, nine actors who wow. portray these various people. They are all terrific. I really think this is a, a worthwhile piece. I wish it were getting a longer run. It's only going to run through the end of this uh, weekend, but I think most of us who went in there are just sort of curious about what this little show is going to be, and uh, came out thinking, "Whoa, this has really got me thinking about the way we view history and the way the way history shapes also uh, the way that we interact with one another." Uh, it's really an impressive. Uh, uh, first uh, play. Not shocking because 59 59 has been doing yeah. outstanding work for years now. <laughs> what a place. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, you know, I actually went to one of these things uh, in Selma, Alabama um, <laughs> some years ago. I was um, a travel writer and um, I was asked to go down to Alabama and see this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and um, it really was something to see these people. Um, and I'm delighted that uh, somebody has paid attention to this degree to um, because it's, it's a very documentary thing that we're dealing with here. And I think that's really wonderful. So um, I'm looking forward. I'm going to get there this week. Uh, oh, good. College. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So Had a Load of Musket at 5090 is playing through January 26th, which just is uh, a week away, as Jen has mentioned. So, uh, Peter, you got over to Theater for a New Audience to see uh, Timon of Athens. So tell us about this uh, Royal Shakespeare Company uh, production. Time in the bath. You know, whenever I, I don't even, I don't even know if you people even know this song, but um, whenever I hear Time in the Athens, I always think of April in Paris, that song, you know, Time in the Athens. Anyway, <laughs> so actually, this should be Timona of Athens or something like that, because they really have changed the sex of the uh, main character. I, they use the word lady quite a bit, so it's not as if we're watching a woman playing a man. We are definitely watching a woman playing a woman. Um, they have altered Shakespeare's text in that way, and um, I don't think he's going to complain about it. But anyway, um, who they have here is Catherine Hunter. Now, while watching her, somehow I started thinking about Al Hirschfeld, because back in the 60s, Al Hirschfeld did a series called Unlikely Casting. He did a, a, a character of Zero Mostel, what he would look like playing Peter Pan. Okay. <laughs> So he did a character of Carol Channing playing Lady Macbeth. 
And he did the greatest caricature, caricature he ever did. I beg of you to go on Google and find this character, Google Images, because he did Robert Preston, who was appearing then in Ben Franklin in Paris, and Sammy Davis, who was then appearing in Golden Boy. And he actually was able to have them um, be in The Boys from Syracuse by having one face atop another. So in other words, there's the two men meet at their heads. And so Preston is on the left. Davis is on the right. But <laughs> if you look at the left side, you will see Preston's face. And if you look at the right side of the face, somehow it's Sammy Davis's face. It's just an amazing thing. He's never He never did anything um, remotely as wonderful as that, as wonderful as he was. I guarantee you, if you look, uh, why am I bringing this up? Because this is very unlikely casting here um, at uh, Theater for the New Audience, because um, I don't feel that this woman is up to the task at all. She, um, whatever wonders that she had in her career, I'm sorry to say that her voice has a hollowness to it now. And sometimes she's very hard to understand. There's no question she's feisty when she has to be feisty, and Timon does get feisty. This is a story of a generous person who is so generous to his friends that he runs out of money. She runs out of money. And um, now it's time to go to the friends and say, help me out, and they're not going to do it. So um, there's a very famous scene where she invites them all to dinner and she serves them water with rocks for some reason. Um, it's not clear to me at all. Uh, maybe this was director Simon Godwin's idea, but whosever idea it was, is very strange to me. It doesn't seem to be water in there. It's a red substance that I imagine is supposed to be blood. And for some reason she poured blood on top of herself. I guess that indicates that she's going crazy. Um, so it's, it's really quite, um, as I say, feisty. And I would like to see this actress play Mother Courage. I think she, uh, that would be a better role for her. But again, the voice is just too hollow now. So, um, yeah, I remember Walter Kurt, I think it was about Alfred Drake saying the voice has gone prematurely gray. And that's what reminded mm -hmm. me here. So um, it's a very earthy production. You will have to watch... Um, something involving urination that is quite unpleasant. I don't mean just the urination itself. What happens after with that urine is quite unpleasant as well. So, um, and in fact, it even involves a tiny bit of audience participation that makes it um, uh, unfortunate. It's not just the voice. She's very melodramatic. She's very actressy, uh, to use an Agnes, uh, Ogden Nash phrase. So um, there's a very nice tableau at the end. I stayed till the end. Um, and um, But boy, um, I really think when you have to have a character that has plenty of lines, and Timon does, that you have to have somebody who can really, really um, make those words sure, because Shakespeare's all about language. And if you can't hear the language, if you can't understand the language, then there's a real problem. And I think Catherine Hunter has that problem. Hmm. All right. So uh, Timon of Athens at Theatre for the New Audience is playing through February 9th uh, in Brooklyn at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Jan, you got over uh, to the Broadway production of Jagged Little Pill. And uh, why don't you tell us what's, uh, what your opinion on that was? Well, I know you guys have already uh, talked about it, and so I'm pretty sure people have uh, an idea of what the show is about. It's based on the uh, 1995 album of uh, Alanis Morissette's, uh, but 
this is not a bio musical as so many so-called jukebox musicals are. Uh, this has a book by uh, Diablo Cody, who is most famous for winning an Oscar for her screenplay for the movie Juno. And she's done a narrative that touches on every contemporary issue you can think of. For me, uh, there were too many of them. Rape culture, opioid abuse, internet porn, racism, sexual identity. She even manages to get a little hint of the college admission scandal in there. Um, uh, f- failing marriages. Uh, it. The bottom line is oddly that I enjoyed it more than I thought I would but it's not a show for me. Uh, I think the most, some of the things just didn't make sense. I mean, the fact that you've got all of these uh, issues crammed into this play, none of them are, it seemed to me, are really dealt with in any substantive uh, way. And uh, this is directed by Diane Paulus, and certainly she knows how to put on a show. But some of the elements that she adds really don't make sense to me. Uh, The opening scene is this family, and it centers around this family, the Healy's, and they're having a, a breakfast where they're not connecting. And then all of a sudden, the entire ensemble of dancers is dancing around their kitchen. And I'm thinking, why are these people dancing around the kitchen? It doesn't make any sense. One of the members of uh, the family is uh, the, the the daughter, and she is Black. She has been adopted by the family from infancy. So this is uh, her family. But she, we're made to uh, uh, believe that she feels alienated because she's growing up, uh, in this white suburban community in Connecticut. And yet this was the most diverse ensemble I have seen on Broadway. And so when she's there sort of complaining, I'm thinking, well, just look around. Um, there are people for you to hang around with. It, uh, there are things like that, um, that just didn't, uh, jibe. Um, and for me, it's very difficult with these uh, musicals that use pre-existing songs because the songs don't, for me, express what the characters are feeling so much as they comment on what the, the characters are feeling. And there were moments when I really wanted to know what a, what a character was going through in that moment. And the song, even though they were good songs, didn't express that uh, for me. The orchestrations were done uh, as so often is the case for these sort of rock-based or pop uh, music-based shows by Tom Kitt, who now just seems to have this down to, you know, an art form. He knows how to translate those sounds into a Broadway uh, uh, setting. But I think for me, the most interesting thing about this musical is that it seems to be ushering in um, 
an era of Gen X musicals, musicals that are based on music for people who are now in their 40s, um, moving away from the boomer musicals uh, that <laughs> we've had so many of. Um, and I guess this really is going to usher in uh, a new era because in uh, June we're going to have uh, a, a musical based on Britney Spears's album uh, "Once Upon a One More Time." So, uh, uh, sort of a passing of the baton in terms of the jukebox musicals, and perhaps if I were a Gen Xer, I might have uh, appreciated it even more. There are some very good performances, and again, as I say, Diane Paulus knows how to put on a show. So if you like Alanis Morissette's music, um, you're looking for just a, you know, and you like a musical with a little bit of... uh, substance you're not just a traditional musical comedy person you're more in the next to normal dear van hansen vein you want dealing grappling with contemporary issues uh this may be uh the show for you um what did you think about the uh well let me ask first Mm -hmm. did they have a a mid show standing ovation for you ought to know yes and uh yes uh, that's obviously uh, Alanis Marset's most famous song and uh, delivered in uh, this production by uh, young actress Lauren Patton with all the, the passion and fervor that you would want. Uh, it's one of the things about going to these jukebox musicals is uh, watching, experiencing the audience applauding itself as much as the performance <laughs> Peak. Um, it's it's hey i know that song and i'm so and i i that sounded as though i was putting this down and i really don't mean to to put people down because it's a way of saying um hey welcome to the theater and there's there there are a lot of people who aren't really quite sure if musicals are for them. Maybe they went to Hamilton because everybody told them about Hamilton. And now people say, well, let's go to see another show. And they're not really quite certain. And then they hear these songs. I mean, Moulin Rouge was just one beat after another Mm. of that. And I think it makes them feel welcome. Like, yes, this is for me. And when they heard that song, I think that's what the uh, emotion was coming out as much as for Lauren Patton, who I say uh, really did do a terrific job with the, 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 the song, but I think they were, they were, they were a little pleased with themselves too. So what's surprising to me is that, um, is that Jagged Little Pill is selling fine. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's in the million dollar club. Uh, but it's not, you know, in the wicked Lion King Hamilton area. Uh, and I'm assuming that they're going to have You Ought to Know as their song on the Tony Awards. Mm. But it seems like they should be, we should, you know, if they continue to get standing ovations mid show for this song, that they need to put clips of 
this on television and they need to put clips of it on social media and everything like that to really um, get the word the out, hell, market the hell yeah, out of the show. Yeah. I mean, uh, so uh, I'm interested. I, I everybody who sees this, I, I ask them about mm-hmm. this, uh, this thing, because I, I don't think that it's being marketed well right now. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, uh, uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Jan, Mm-hmm. Yeah. This week coming up, yes. you are going to hang out with your friends um, Ming Pfeiffer, Bess Wall, and Doing Your Love. Yeah, yeah, my buds. Um, buds. <laughs> um, this year is the seventieth um, anniversary of the Outer Critics Circle. Um, and oh, happy birthday! Thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a group of uh, of reporters and critics. Um, who work for both print and um, online publications. And one of the things that uh, the group has been doing since the 1970s is uh, giving out awards, recognizing playwrights at the beginning of their careers. And um, I'm really proud of the fact that we've got like this terrific track record. I think the first um, award went out to John Guir believe it or not. But over the years, we've, uh, we've recognized um, Lynn Nottage and David Henry Wong, Susan Laurie Parks, um, uh, just sort of uh, who's who of uh, contemporary American playwrights. And so to start off our celebration of uh, this 70th season for the group, we're going to uh, have a panel at BroadwayCon and we're going to, uh, on the panel are going to be those, uh, three playwrights you named, uh, uh, Donye Our Love. People will know him for Sugar in Our Wounds and Ming Pfeiffer, Usual Girls. They were finalists for our award, which we've, uh, called the John Gassner Award, which is named after the founder of the OCC. And, um, also joining them will be Bess Wall. Um, who won the award in 2017 for Small Mouth Sounds, still one of my all-time favorites, um, and who will be making her Broadway debut this week um, with the second stage production of Grand Horizons. Um, the discussion uh, of, uh, uh, between the playwrights is going to be moderated by um, Richard Ridge, um, and I'm sure people uh, know him from his Broadway uh, uh uh, Broadway World uh, series. Um, and it's going to be on Friday morning at um, 11.15 in the Beekman Room at uh, the Midtown Hilton during Broadway Con. And um, uh, I don't have to sell Broadway Con to people who listen to this podcast. It is such great fun. And it's, it's, it's fun, but it's also substantive because you get to, uh, hear people like, uh, uh, these guys and, and they're going to be talking about, um, the state of, uh, contemporary, uh, playwriting. And I'm just really excited to, um, uh, have the chance to be in a room with all three of them. And I hope other people will join us there. All right. So, uh, as uh, as per the usual, it, it's cool to hang out with Jan. 
<laughs> I agree. <laughs> we had a good time last year at Broadway Con. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. All right. So before we wrap up for today, Peter's got a trivia question. So Peter, why don't you give us that? Um, usually you do a, uh, a cute little wrap up, uh, which gives me time to find us. So, uh, oh, let me do that. <laughs> so before we get on to trivia, I want to let everybody know that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new message, a new episode of this week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Jan, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today. So now, yes. Peter, do you have a <laughs> trivia question? Sure do. Two performers much associated with Broadway played the same role in a very famous musical. Ironically, the first one to play the role the one far more associated with it, didn't get a Tony for it. But the second one did get a Tony for playing the same role, but not in the original production and not in a revival either. Who are the performers, the show, and how did this happen? All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.